This is a unique podcast exploring the criminal justice system and those involved and affected. We'll educate and expose the public as well as potential jurors to what takes place behind the scenes of those who are facing the system. Your host owns a litigation support firm called Justice Technology Professionals, and he works on criminal and civil cases offering support to defendants and counsel. What you're about to hear is an open dialogue opening the minds to the public to what takes place in reality as opposed to what you think takes place ladies and gentlemen welcome to the justice tech pros podcast here's your host dominic crea greetings listeners it's been a while since our last podcast so i wanted to get one out I have a few topics that I'm going to touch on that have uh, piqued my interest over the course of, uh, over the interim between this episode and the last episode. So there's really not going to be a main theme today. It's just going to be a little jumping around, touching on different topics and discussing them. And the first one that comes to mind that I was looking at that I made a notation of, back in February there was a... There's a case that was going on. It's the United States versus Najad. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but it's uh, N-E-J-A-D. And in that case, there was some claims of prosecutorial misconduct, and it was based on countless belated disclosures to the lawyers by the U.S. Attorney's Office. So the sitting judge, Judge Allison Nathan, on the case ordered a probe into that to see if these things were being done intentionally and basically what was going on. Now, from what I understand, the order issued later on was she did not find any misconduct taking place. So my point just is a couple things with this. One, I I do commend the judge for at least taking the steps to look into it, listening to what the uh, prosecution was, no, I'm sorry, not the prosecution, what the defense attorneys were saying and take it seriously as opposed to just blow it off, which unfortunately happens time and again when claims of misconduct are made. They just kind of get blown off and, and aren't really looked into. It, it does appear as far as this case was concerned, it was looked into and then the, whatever ruling happened, happened. I'm, I'm really not going to focus on that part of it. I, I think what is disturbing though when you start looking into these cases where there is misconduct or the potential for misconduct a lot of times the order will have to do with there was no intentional wrongdoing by the prosecutor and that always bothers me because what is the threshold to define intentional it's very easy for somebody to to do things that will screw up the defense that will delay things that will mess up strategy, not allow for a fair trial, and then just chalk it up to, well, it wasn't intentional. I I made an error. This is just how I did it. So that, that bothers me because it leaves such a big window open where you could throw things out the window, basically saying, well, it's not intentional. It's not intentional. It's not intentional. There should be some kind of guidelines in place where if you do X, Y, and Z, regardless of your intentions, there's a problem and there's a form of rectifying it and there's a course of action behind it. Leaving it so vague, it just allows what 
what we often see happen where it gets dismissed and it's nothing's really made of it. Now, I pulled a lot of the documents, and I got to say, it's very interesting. If you go on Pacer, you could, anybody could pull it. You just put the case in, but they turned over a lot of the emails, the inter-office emails between the prosecutor, the prosecution team. And I don't know, I'm not a judge, but just by reading that, to me, it seems like there was a lot more play than not being intentional. But again, that's the conclusion the judge made. What bothers me is you you could do all these things, you could bring it to an attention, you could say there was misconduct, but nothing really gets done about it nine out of ten times. There's, and it goes back to what I always speak about relating to accountability. There's no accountability. These mistakes could be made. The defense could suffer as a result of these mistakes. The defendant uh, suffers the most as a result of these mistakes, and there's no recourse to give a little rectification, something to prevent it from happening again. I mean, even here, I don't really know if anything that took place with this case, it made a lot of headlines, it was in a lot of papers about the judge ordering the probe, but when you follow it through and you see the result, what really happened? Nothing really. There There was nothing negative, no negative consequences that resulted from the probe. So... It's a matter of, okay, the prosecutor delayed. It wasn't right for them to delay. The defense wasn't able to prepare as properly as they should have. But what's the end result? Nothing. Just a few headlines. It it comes across as if they're doing a deep probe and they're going to find out what went wrong and the defense is going to get a little bit of satisfaction with the results. But that never really takes place. And I... I think that's a problem. I th- again, I don't know what the answer is because these things play out over and over and it, and it's on a level that I have no impact on. So I like to just talk about it on the show and hopefully have the public think about it and potential jurists think about it and to see how much leeway these offices get, the state office, the federal office, when they are prosecu- prosecuting a case I think what's most disturbing is they have all the tools at their disposal. They have all the resources, they have all the money, they have all the team members, they have staff, they have whatever they need to put these cases to trial to get the indictments. One would think that they have to be held to a higher standard. And if they do make an error, whether it's intentional, not intentional, there has to be some kind of reprimand, something to prevent others from doing the same mistake because now if you do get somebody who wants to make these quote-unquote mistakes intentionally, what's, what's really deterring them from doing that when they see that even after a probe, even after looking into it, even after having to disclose all of the private emails and all of the information, nothing really happens there's really no deterrent to stop that from happening in the future. If they get a slap on the wrist but still could get their conviction, why would anybody care? They're going to take the slap on the wrist and just make these choices. So I think that's a big flaw, and I think people don't really look at that as greatly as they should, and they don't understand that in the sense that the damage and the potential damage that it can do, and as we know, 
is done. I mean, how many cases? And I'm going to talk a little bit about a case I saw on the show where it was just blatant misconduct. But it's, I don't know, it's, uh, I, I just wanted to kind of kick that around because when I first saw the headlines, when it first came out and I saw that a probe was taking place, naively, I, I, I was a little optimistic in the sense that perhaps this would set a precedent. This would set some kind of standard that would prevent these type of issues from taking place in the future. But it didn't really go that way. It just, it just kind of fizzled out. And uh, nothing was really done about it. They looked into it. And they decided it wasn't done intentionally, which, again, I think that's too broad of a term. I think that's an opinion-based term. What, what, I, what I may interpret as intentional, somebody else may not. So I just don't like that type of angle when you're looking at these situations. There should be more of a checklist, more of a check and balance in place where it's much easier to determine whether someone is allowed to do something or isn't allowed to do something. It shouldn't be left to interpretation whether or not you believe it was intentional or malicious. I don't think that should take place in that. And by by having that in there, it pretty much gives a scapegoat anytime something happens. If you have a judge who's not looking to be fair, they could just rely on that term. They could use that over and over again and just say it wasn't done intentionally uh, and that's the end of that. There's there's no 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 way to explore it further. I guess that pretty much closes that segment out. It was just something I wanted to bring to the listeners' attention. If they wanted to look into it further, I gave the case name, and they could just see how these things take place. And I know now there's a big push, just the atmosphere of the country, to prevent misconduct and to prevent unfair treatment and these slaps on the wrist aren't really going to do it and chalking things up to harmless errors is is not going to do it there has to be more of a, a stringent code to support and enforce when a error takes place and like i said when you have endless money endless resources endless personnel i just think that the guidelines and the rules you should abide by should be a little more stringent than the average person who has to pay for their defense team and has to pay for all these things. They obviously are, from the from inception, they're already up against an uphill battle just on economics alone. So one would think to try to balance that out, you implement stricter guidelines for the opposing team for the state and for the government for the prosecution but that's not how it goes they try to say it's fair on both sides but when you look at it it's really not because you have a defendant who's limited to their budget what they could afford as far as putting on a defense and you have the government of the state uh, whether it's federal level state level who pretty much has everything at their disposal so right from the beginning it's really not fair in order to make it fair you would have to almost handicap it and you know that isn't uh as we know that's not what takes place so anyway that's that kind of leads me to another um item i wanted to touch on and we made a post on it on our social media a while back it was just about it's a simple concept 
whenever you watch any kind of investigative program or you're involved in the legal aspect of it where you see investigations take place and you're reading through to discovery, you're reading through the material, you notice a lot of times during the investigation they'll do a polygraph test to rule out suspects or to rule in suspects. And I, and I did a show about polygraph. That's not the point I'm making here. What I'm making here is I don't know why they don't use that exact same policy where it relates to informants at the beginning. And I'm not saying it's the end-all, be-all, but it would give the team, the U.S. attorney, whoever's state's attorney, whoever's working with the informant, law enforcement, whoever's working with the informant, it will give them a gauge, a starting point just to see how honest this individual is. If they start failing everything you're asking them, well, it should have the same philosophy as a potential suspect. Depending how much reliability you want to give into that, maybe it moves the needle a little bit where you realize this person just isn't being truthful, they're just not being accurate, and they... um, they're not bringing to the table what they promised to bring because it's nothing but lies. They're just telling us what we want to hear. And again, it makes one think about that. Why would they do that? If they're looking for convictions and they're not looking for justice and they're not looking for the truth, why would they want to rule out an informant who is telling them what they want to hear? Just look at it from a common sense aspect. And as I always said, my opinion on informants is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how I feel morally about it. That's I'm not here to preach that. What I'm here to break down for the public is whether you do agree or you don't agree with the informant morally. I think we could all agree that at the very least, they should tell the truth. Whatever they are disclosing should be factual and it should be the truth. They shouldn't be making up tall tales just for a self-serving purpose and to avoid their own personal accountability for whatever they had done, whatever may come to light down the road, whatever they want to prevent getting an indictment for, if they want to get early time off, if they just want to escape, if they want to change careers and now have a career doing podcasts and books so they decided to inform. There's always an angle. There's always an agenda. There's always a rationale. There's always something in return. It's a give and take. You never have an informant that comes in and they get nothing out of it. I spoke about the K-1 letters where a lot of informants will tell you, oh, no, you know, the judge could give me any time they want to give me. That's not true. Pull all the cases, every single case we have an informant, and weigh the credibility and the impact a, a positive K-1 letter had given where it relates to the sentencing, the judge hands down. And the K-1 letter, for those who missed that episode, that's basically like a a recommendation letter. You know, when you go for a job and you get a recommendation letter, it's very similar. The K-1 letter comes from the government on the federal level, and they issue this letter that is basically uh, glowing reviews, how much you help them, all the people you help put away. So that is going to sway the sitting judge that is now sentencing the informant. Yes, they're going to tell you, oh, it has no impact. The judge could do whatever he wants to do. That sounds great in theory, and that's a good way to paint it for the un for the juror who doesn't know any better. But if you go by facts and you pull up statistical information on it, and you could pull up all the different informant cases, 
pull up the sentencing they got, they had received, as opposed to the one they were facing, and then compare it with the glowing K-1 letter, you'll know, anybody with common sense will know, that K-1 letter is what influenced the outcome. They got a good K-1 letter. They got either no time, they got time served, um, nonsense compared to what they were facing. Some people facing life. And they wind up getting time served or house arrest or um, supervised released. So I know they like to use that and play that card in court and play it on interviews and try to say, oh, I could have faced big time. No, you're not going to face big time. Stop saying that. It sounds ridiculous. You know you're not. You're promised that you're getting this K-1 letter. And everybody uses strategic language. The uh, prosecutor we use, we never made any promises that he that his cooperation will guarantee little time wink wink yeah you don't need to make any promises about that because we know how it's going to play out that's like me saying i'm not going to make any promises that tomorrow the sun's going to rise well the sun's going to rise no matter what it's going to i don't need to promise that because that's something that's going to happen so people need to be very aware of that they use a lot of clever terminology and they position things in such a way to make the average person think, well, he's just, you know, he's risking a lot by testifying. He's not, he doesn't have anything to gain. That's not true. There's a lot to gain. There's a lot to gain. There's careers to gain. They're going to go and, and do nowadays, and I don't want to harp on that because I talk about that a lot, but nowadays you could reinvent yourself and create a whole career based on your prior life based on becoming an informant. You could do interviews, podcasts, books, blogs. It's endless. And I talked about that in nauseam, so I don't want to go down that road. But my point just is, there's a lot to gain. The K-1 letter does a lot to satisfy the sitting judge where they feel it's warranted not to give any time. So my point is, going back to my initial thought, I just feel if an investigator is truly about trying to find the facts and try to distinguish fact from fiction, a polygraph for every informant would be a useful tool. And we know they're not court admissible, so I'm not saying it's gospel. I'm not saying it's that's all you use, it's etched in stone. I'm just saying it's a tool. The same way they utilize a tool for investigative purposes Use it to distinguish your initial gauge on the person you're being confronted with, on the person who's claiming that they have all this knowledge and all this insight. I don't see the harm in using that just to go down that road, just to see if you're dealing with somebody who has the potential to be truthful or somebody who has the potential to be deceiving. And I actually created a Facebook group I'll put it on. Uh, I'll put the link in the uh, details. It's just about juror education, and I think that's going to help a lot in the long run with future trials with with people. It's just things to be aware of. It's not to sway anybody. It's not to push propaganda. All it is is I, I have my team uh, put up some cases, put up some information, things to make people uh, reflect. Something for the general public just to understand a little bit more prior to becoming a juror. Who knows? Maybe it'll help. There's nothing to gain from it. 
it's a, it's a group you could just it's a public group so anybody could see it anybody could see the information on it uh, this case that I spoke about earlier that Najad case the documents were actually put into that group so you could view the documents a lot of articles are on there again it's a good it's a good group to check out anybody who's interested in this kind of information anybody wants to be a better prepared juror just search uh, juror education on Facebook and you'll you'll see the group and you could Check out all the, the items on there. The other thing I wanted to touch on, and I thought about it when I was having my last episode when I had those two experts on, and it reminded me, we were just talking about how, which was news to me, and I found I found very interesting how a lot of the experts are ex-law enforcement, and they have their own systems in place, they have their own clique, and they look at, defense experts, or I shouldn't even say defense experts. I I take that back. They look at experts that go by the science in a negative way. Apparently, if an expert strictly goes by the science, that's a problem. But it got me thinking. When they were kind of elaborating about how some of these experts are ex-law enforcement, don't look to go by the truth, just try to support the narrative, I remembered something that I actually forgot about. When I was working on the, uh, my last case, I, I reached out to an expert before I found the one we wound up uh, using. I had a, uh, let me see how to say this because again, you know, a lot of this stuff was under a protective order and if I say it, it's a, it's a problem. It'd be chaos. Anybody else, it'd be no big deal, but with me, it'd be a problem. So um, basically, I had some information that I wanted to get verified. Okay, I wanted it to just, I needed an expert because uh, to me it just didn't look right. Uh, the, the testing I did on it, which I have a little bit of background and ability to test uh, metadata and to, uh, to test origination of a document and if it was altered and things like that. To me, it just didn't seem right. And my initial run through resulted in what I would say causes me to question the legitimacy of the document. So I wanted an expert. This was just my opinion. I kept it to myself. I didn't even inform the defense team because I wanted an expert to either rule out what I was questioning or to tell me it's worth looking further into. So to give you a little story, I went searching. I went on the internet. I found a few experts and I started corresponding with one. And before I divulged anything about the case, before I got into it, I just gave, um, I had to send them a protective order to sign so I could have them look at what I wanted them to look at. They signed it. They sent it back. I then released to them what I wanted them to to look at. Now, the the first guy was very gung-ho about it, and he was concluding initially. Now, this is just initially. I, I didn't get to use them for the final results, but initially he was agreeing with my first observations and my first determinations. He was agreeing with me and he concluded the same way I did from initial inspection. So we were going back and forth and he was all into it and he was going to send me over the um, retainer to retain their firm and utilize the services so they could give me an official report based on their findings, whether the document was legitimate or not. Long story short, a couple days go by. I'm trying to email this guy, 
trying to get back to him. Now, to get the retainer, I had to send him all the case information. You know, I had to send him the, the docket number, the case, what it's about, and he had to fill all that out. He had it. The only thing that threw me off is he had it when I sent him the protective order, but I'm thinking he probably didn't do his due diligence on it. He just signed the protective order, looked it over, and sent it back, so he must have not been um, aware of the details. So a couple days go by, I'm trying to reach out to this guy. He's not getting back to me, which was crazy because when I first reached out to him, we were corresponding like 1 and 2 in the morning, so I knew something wasn't right. A couple days later, after no answer, now in my head I'm like, okay, here we go. This guy saw the case. He don't want to be involved. He, you know, unfortunately, as I always talk about, if you're Italian the and you're charged with RICO, people don't want to touch it. But I think after speaking with the experts, I think it goes a little more deeper than that. When the experts were telling me that law enforcement is a big part of the expert arena, I think this really ties more into that aspect of it than the actual case. Or it could be twofold. It could be double. So then I get an email back from this guy's partner, I believe. And the partner, very short, just says, we're no longer interested in the case. Thank you. So now, what does that immediately tell me? And I remember back then just thinking, okay, these guys just don't want to be bothered. They don't want to touch or try to uh, have anything to do with an Italian charge with uh, Rico. But now, after speaking with the experts last week, I believe it's more tied to the whole law enforcement aspect of it. The document I was questioning uh, was related to the investigation. So who knows? Did they call somebody? Did they say don't touch it? Did they call one of their friends? It seems like they're all kind of intertwined. So after the discussion, uh, the guests I had on last time, it really makes me believe there was more to that. And it goes to show, if that's what takes place, how unfair now the expert part of the whole defense strategy is. You have to even now watch what type of experts you get. And that's a reality. You have to really look into the experts. You got to make sure that these experts are going to go by the science. They're going to put personal judgments aside. They're going to put personal feelings aside, personal relationships aside, and just give you results based on the science, the material, and the information. Now that seems to even be a problem that needs to be navigated. That needs to be something that you can't just assume, well, they're an expert. They're going to give me an expert opinion. It doesn't appear that that's the case. The defense really has to do their due diligence now and decide who they want to bring on to help their team. Because, unfortunately, it appears it's not about the science for some. And that's a perfect example. That was a black and white example. The guy's partner was all gung-ho. And it's funny because I have all the emails still, so I know who the guy is. I I know who the firm is. And, And the positive thing is at least I could offer my guidance with defendants that come my way of who not to use. I mean, the partner was all gung-ho. He was agreeing with my initial results. He was looking forward to it. Initially, we were saying it's a problem. Then after a couple of days, they must have did their calling. He must have informed his partner. They must have called their friends, whatever, and somebody, somebody uh, knocked it down. Somebody said, do not follow up with it and leave it alone. Don't even get involved. Now, right away, that should tell you, you're not dealing with experts. You're dealing with somebody who has an agenda. You're dealing with a team who will only be your expert if it doesn't step on anybody's toes, if the results doesn't affect friends or buddies. or 
and again, I'm just guessing, but that's a pretty accurate hypothesis I'm putting together. I mean, I'm, I'm using all the facts. I'm not pulling this from midair. I'm using everything that took place. I'm using all the correspondence, and then I'm drawing my conclusion. So I'd have to say I'm pretty accurate on that. I don't think I'm casting judgment unjustifiably. I, I think there's some legitimacy to what I'm saying and a little bit of common sense. So I wanted to share that story because that's something for defendants, something for the defense family, for the defendant's family, some, something for the defense team to think about. It's very important that you have a tight network and a solid network that you work with when you're putting together a defense. You have to make sure those in your corner are going by the facts. And, and I always say, we don't, you don't want people on your side, per se. You, if, if it's a factual thing you're looking at, if it's something that requires specific forensics or specific information or data, you just want the data. And if it comes back, say you pay the price to get the report done, to get the analysis completed, and it comes back unfavorable. You don't have to use it. It's a defense team internal item, so don't use it. But you just want it to be accurate. Say it, does, it, it hurts your client, it doesn't help. Okay, don't use it. But you want at least the results to be accurate. You want them to be fair and impartial. You want to make sure what you're getting for somebody you're paying a service for is is raw data, you know, actual conclusive data one way or the other based on the science of it, based on the process, not based on anything else. None of these exterior influences should be affecting the results of a paid service request. They're in the service industry, right? They're servicing people. When you pay for a service, you'd expect to get proper service. So I'm in the service industry. I've been in it my whole life. I know what it is to service an account, to do things for the client, to put your personal feelings aside and just do the job. So when you see that doesn't take place and at the expense of somebody's life, that's really, that's something else. That's really disheartening. I also want to give another story that it was shocking and very disappointing, and I wanted to share it just to give people who have any sense of humanity a little insight into what takes place unnecessarily, where it's it's blatant mistreatment, and I would say a form of torture because you have somebody, I have somebody that I know. Their loved one was away. Is away. They're they're in the BOP system, the federal system, and someone in their family, close in their family, was dying. And this person didn't even request to have a furlough. They knew when the the loved one passed, they weren't going to get it, so they didn't even go down that route to try to request it. But what happened was obviously they wanted to stay in close contact with their loved ones when somebody was passing away. So they would call them frequently and just try to be in the loop, try to have some last goodbyes over the phone, try to comfort their loved ones during this time. Now, by using the phone, they were using a lot of their minutes. And they were a week away. In the BOP, I believe you get 300 minutes a month. And then it resets. They were a week away now from the time being reset and they ran out of minutes. Unfortunately, the loved one passed away, but prior to that, they asked their counselor if they could just get their minutes one week earlier. 
They didn't ask for extra minutes. They were willing to have it shaved off for the following period. They just asked for it to, to have minutes one week earlier, just so they could continue to talk to their loved ones during this tragic time. Do you believe they wouldn't approve that? They wouldn't approve the minutes just for one week earlier, okay? To be, to allow this person just to talk and to allow the family to have that connection. As distant as it is, it's over the phone. Just to have that connection as somebody, a significant loved one, was unfortunately losing their battle and eventually passing away. This person wasn't allowed to stay in contact over the phone for comfort, for healing during that tragic time. Over one week, we're talking about one week, just all that had to be done was okay, we'll approve it for one week. You still only get your 300 minutes. You're not asking for extra minutes. You're just asking for a one-week pushover so you could use those minutes now instead of later on next month. And the person, the inmate was totally fine with losing that extra period. You know, they would have ran out earlier the following month. There was no problem with that. He just wanted to move it up one week so he could continue to talk. And do you believe that was denied? How heartless is somebody to do that? What would it take just to approve that? for? You're not asking to let them out. You know, you're not, they're not going to get out. They didn't even go for that. They're not trying to get out. They're not trying to get a furlough. They just wanted to talk. And that one little request couldn't be granted. I don't know. To me, that really shows the spitefulness of some people. I don't know how heartless you got to be. Somebody's family members passing. They're away. They can't see their family. And you're not even permitting them to talk to them. Because you're in some kind of position of power. Look at the advantage this person takes. What kind of human being you have to be for that? I could never imagine saying no to something like that. I, I don't know how, I don't know. It just, it amazes me, the, the viciousness that takes place. And that goes on in the spite work, just to have somebody suffer more than they already are. For what? What do you get out of that? What kind of person are you that that, that, that does something for you? What effect does it even have on you? How does that even impact you? Give the person the call. What does that do for you in life? You just want to be a spiteful, miserable person? Is that it? And some people are. Some people are miserable people. And that's the result. That's, that's how they get off. Ruining other people's lives. Something they can never get back now. You just took away something they can never get back. I can't relate to it. Unfortunately, that's you have a lot of people in society like that. A lot of members of society. And now think about getting a guy like that on your jury. Think about that. That's the problem in a nutshell. You're going to get somebody like that uh, deciding someone's fate. How do you think that's going to turn out? It's complete, totally incredible what goes on that, that the general public has no idea. They have no idea about these tactics and these spite work situations that take place. They really don't. And when you hear it, Years ago, I was naive, and I would hear certain things, and I would say, oh, they can't do that, and, and I even did an episode on that. You, you could take that statement and throw it right out the window. They could do whatever they want. That's one thing the public needs to get in their head, and it's the public's job to make sure all we could do as the public is to ensure that somebody gets a fair trial, and that's my only goal with doing this. I have nothing to gain from this. I don't make any money from this. It, does, it actually just costs me money when you try to market it and this just to get people to hear. My only outcome for this whole entire project 
is to possibly help defendants down the road and to inform the public what's going on and to show the other side of things because lately you have all these podcasts popping up with so many lies, so much nonsense, and to sit there quietly and allow that to take place, that's not who I am. So those are all my goals. I want to counteract a lot of nonsense, a lot of lies. I want to educate the public. I want to vent a little bit, I guess. And I want to give people some insight on what takes place. And you see these things take place. I, you know, As cases come across my desk and I decide whether I'm going to get involved in it, not get involved in it. Either way, whether it's on white collar level, whether it's you know on uh, personal injury type case, you still see practices that take place that make you really make you question things that you can't understand how it's allowed. But it's allowed. Things are allowed. And all you could try to do is your small part to counteract it. And I believe the public holds the power if they would realize that to counteract it, you got to uh, you got to really educate yourself and be prepared before you sit on that panel. And I guess I'll segue into the other uh, topic I wanted to talk about. As I said today, nothing kind of ties into one another. I'm jumping around, but I think that keeps it interesting. I, I know me; I, I tend to get bored easily if something's kind of mundane and drawn out. So maybe the different topics will keep you interested. There's a documentary on Netflix. It's called This is a Robbery. It's about a art heist that took place in Boston, I believe. But that's not the point of what I want to say. What I want to say is there was a statement made by someone in law enforcement on the documentary that I just want to play because I've spoken about this on past episodes. And it really does ring true when you have law enforcement saying the same thing. So I'm going to play that segment for you and just kind of touch on it. Put it this way. Back in 1990, you're an FBI agent, the way you get a promotion, the way you get a raise, do a big mafia case. The culture hadn't changed. That was still how you got your name in the papers, still how you get people on the news. So, so now, have I spoken about that really, it just solidifies and supports a lot of what we already know. When you're driving force for investigation, isn't the charges, but the, but who is getting charged? That's a problem. When, when the driving force isn't so much, well, did this person commit these crimes? Instead, it's, well, is this person labeled organized crime? Because if he's labeled organized crime, as this guy said, I could get promotions, I could get my name in the paper, I could get the headlines. So where do you think the efforts are going to be focused on? They're going to want to get promotions and headlines. But think about that. Imagine your promotion is dictated based on the headlines you get and the type of case you get as opposed to putting away somebody who committed a crime. So if the driving force is just the label that's attached to the individual you're looking to target instead of somebody committing a crime and you're looking to put a criminal away based on the crime they committed. That seems like a big problem, no? Wouldn't the public have a problem with that? Don't you want law enforcement going after those who are committing crimes, not targeting someone and trying to manufacture a crime to get the headlines? And as I always say, if you committed the crime... 
that's life. You, you got to deal with it. You got to face the charges. But to to invent, which I've seen play out, to invent charges, to bring in informants who never met the defendant, to tell lies about the defendant, just because you want those big headlines and just to push and hopefully obtain a promotion. That's a that's a crack in the system, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you say that's a problem? And I'm sure you could look at a lot of ways of looking at this. We have all the all the problems going on now with race, where people are getting targeted for race and they're not doing anything, and they're getting killed and they're getting indicted, and just because of race, it's the same concept here. People don't want to, you know, you have to put that together. It's just the same concept. Nobody should be targeted. If you commit a crime, okay, you commit a crime. But to be targeted based on whether it's headlines, based on whether it's because you're a racist, that has no place in the justice system. That's a problem. The same way somebody who's racist shouldn't be in in the justice system, somebody who's targeting individuals to get promotions and headlines shouldn't be involved in the system, shouldn't be in law enforcement, shouldn't be prosecuting people. There's a problem there. There's got to be some kind of due diligence that takes place to really understand what motivates somebody. Because if those things are motivating factors, we already know the result. It's going on right now. That's what happens. That's where you get all these problems from. You have the wrong individuals in these powerful positions. And because of that, you have people getting wrongfully convicted. You have people getting targeted. You have people losing their lives all over whether it's bias, whether it's greed, whether it's wanting to excel using somebody because of what they're labeled to excel and and push your career to another level. Those are all the wrong reasons to be in those high-powered positions. And yet it's taken place all over, you know, time and time again. Now that kind of leads me to my, my next topic, which... I was watching Dateline, and there's an episode on there. If you could look it up, look it up. It's called The Phone Call. And, you know, people like to think right away that uh, if you come from a certain background or upbringing, you're, anti, you're anti-law enforcement, you're anti-prosecution, uh, and that's not the case. That's ignorant to think that. I was always taught you support the honest individuals doing their occupation. Just You just want somebody to do their job, and you want them to do their job the right way. If they're hired to do a job, you just want them to do it based on the law, based on justice, based on the way of following procedure. And with that said, it goes into what I was just remarking on, where they have to have the right agenda. And there was on Dateline, on the episode, The Phone Call, It was a case, of course, unfortunately, about somebody being targeted, wrongfully convicted. This guy did 13 years in jail, and which was really terrible. Of course, the guy was innocent, but what was horrible, after doing 13 years of fighting, this poor guy gets out. I think he died within 11 months of cancer. So they robbed him of his entire life with his grandkids, with his kids. I mean, absolutely terrible. Absolutely terrible. What I wanted to spotlight that I found very interesting, was there was a DA involved who wound, he wound up being the the spark that pretty much gave this guy the opportunity to get out. 
He was a new DA. He had nothing to do with the prior cases. The individual was tried two times prior. He had nothing to do with any of that. But this DA came in, and he wanted to actually just... He started a division. He started a division within his office. He actually started a convictions integrity unit within his office, whereas basically he told the public, if you feel somebody was wrongfully convicted by this office, get in touch with us and we'll investigate it. Which to me, that right there is groundbreaking. I never even heard of that. But at least it shows, that really shows character. That shows somebody who's there that they only want to make certain whoever they're putting away is justifiably putting away. If they, if they committed a crime and they have the evidence, that's the way the law plays out. That's what his office wants to stand by. He's not there to put innocent people away. And I want to p- play a little excerpt on, his, uh, on that part within the show. When he was elected as DA, Dupree believed his mission was not just to prosecute the guilty, but to investigate claims of innocence. We have told the community that if you believe that there are wrongful convictions, if you believe that one of your loved ones uh, did not get a fair trial, please reach out and to let us know. When you first started the Convictions Integrity Unit, I mean, how many letters did you get? A plethora. I mean, so just to have that outlet is remarkable. I wish the federal government had that outlet where they had a unit that you could write to within the actual prosecution office to have them relook at a case and relook at the facts. And what happened was the individual that was the topic of this episode, he wrote them from jail. He wrote this unit. And they are the ones who wound up opening the case back up. So it goes to show the legitimacy of this unit that he set up. And I, and I commend him for that. Somebody who's just there to do their job and enforce the facts and not put people away based on agenda, based on setting them up. You have to respect that. They're there to do their job. And that's all one can ask for when you're involved in the system is to get a fair trial. That's all you want. And when you hear, if you get a chance, watch the episode because when you hear what took place with this guy, this poor guy that wound up being found guilty again by jurors who really, I don't know how they found him guilty with the evidence, but it goes to show how scary it is. And this guy even said he was so naive because he thought he thought that, you know, I have faith in the justice system. It works. And then when he was sitting in jail, he realized it doesn't really work that well. But it's it's something else when you could see the damage that's done by ill-informed jurors, jurors who don't pay attention, jurors who have their own bias. I know people talk about a fair system, but it's far from it. The reality speaks completely differently, and the only way we could change that is by trying to have people serve on the panel who are there to enforce the law and not for any other reason, and who are going to use their common sense and going to use their smarts to either acquit somebody or convict based on the evidence, nothing else. Just go by the evidence. And this prosecutor goes on uh, a little bit longer, and I want to play another excerpt. And he really he gives a powerful statement here, and I'm just going to let it speak for itself. None of that information was turned over to the defense. How is that possible? There are those who are in uh, these prosecutor positions that uh, their focus is not justice. Their focus is winning. And I'll tell you 
that there was a policy in the office at that time. You do not dismiss murder cases. You try them at all costs. So now here you have a prosecutor telling you, in his own words, how it's not about justice, it's about getting the win. Other prosecutors are just about getting the win. And I've spoken about that many times and the danger of that. And as a result, innocent people are going to jail because it's not about justice, it's about getting a win. And this this guy, again, I, I give him respect uh, that he's trying to be, bring a sense of fairness to the system. He wants to make sure whoever he prosecutes, there's evidence supporting it. And that's all you could ask somebody. That's all you could ask for somebody who's in a power of position just to do the job under the guidelines of the law. Not to fabricate stuff, not to bring information, not to force, not to get lying informants, not to have people tell tall tales to try to get that win. And the scary part is when winning is more important than the truth and justice, the results are devastating. That's a big problem that we see playing out time and again. The only other topic I really wanted to touch on a little is a lot of my studies that I've been following have a lot to do with psychology. It's something I'm interested in and I look into that and not to bore anybody, but one, one aspect of the system that I think is important that gets overlooked and dismissed is a lot of times you'll have informants who who suffer from different disorders, different mental disorders. And I'm not knocking that. You know, that's, unfortunately, that's life. It's a sad part of life. People have mental disorders. They have problems. They have, uh, they have issues within the brain, within the brain capacity, different synapses within the brain, different circuitry isn't working properly, and it cre- causes... A vast array of disorders. Now, my point is not to focus on that. What I'm trying to explain is when the defense is aware of that, say you get an informant coming up or a witness coming up who suffers from a certain issue, a certain disorder, and you start looking into that disorder and you start looking into what are some of the symptoms of that disorder. And a lot of these disorders, this main symptom that correlates and corresponds with, with each one One of the main symptoms that's exhibited is the failure to be able to tell the truth or the tendency to lie. So what I've seen play out is you'll raise the issue to the judge. You'll tell the judge, we want to explore this a little more. We want to be able to cross-examine on the history, on the background of the disorder, of the medications involved. And the judge will actually say, That has no bearing on his ability to tell the truth. I'm not allowing you to go down that road. Now, how is that possible when you have books, studies, documents, peer reviews, all issuing statements to the contrary, where it's part of the diagnosis stage, when you're looking at a patient and you're trying to diagnose and you're going over the different symptoms, and you're trying to put together what they may be suffering from, the disorder that they may be suffering from, and if they're using one of the systematic behaviors of lying 
to get a definitive diagnosis, but yet the judge is saying there is it doesn't impact their ability to tell the truth. How is that possible? The judge is making a statement that is just not accurate, and they're using that statement to once again handcuff the defense and not allow them to explore that option. Wouldn't that be reasonable, a, a reasonable request that you want to explore that option in front of the jury so you could explain to the jury this person suffers from X, Y, and Z disorder. One of the main symptoms of that disorder, it's in the top three or four, is the tendency to lie, not tell the truth, to embellish. Wouldn't that be a reasonable request? And how doesn't that aid in their ability to tell the truth? It's, it's, it's documented within the symptoms. It's written in the literature on it. I, I don't understand that. When you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a clinician, there's like a holy Bible, so to speak, of all different mental disorders. It's called, they abbreviate it with an acronym of DSM. It's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Now, within that DSM, they'll list the different types of disorders. They'll list the symptoms. They'll list uh, ways of diagnosis, treatments, etc., now, if this holy Bible, so to speak, houses the information that correlates what disorders exhibit the symptom of lying, not telling the truth, embellishing, and you're not allowed to use that, bring in a professional, bring in an expert and elaborate on that, and just cast a little bit of doubt where the juror now understands, okay, if this informant or this witness or whatever, if they're... If they receive this diagnosis, and one of the traits of the diagnosis, one of the symptoms, is the inability to tell the truth or the tendency to lie, shouldn't they be aware of that? And again, I'm not saying that that's end-all, be-all, and they're all liars. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying if you have a mental disorder, you're a liar. I'm not saying that at all. People will try to twist it to say that's what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. To be crystal clear, I am simply saying that is one of the potential symptoms symptoms. So why should a defense team not be able to explore that? That is what I'm saying. And maybe it's it's un, un, unraveled and it's exposed that the person is telling the truth. There'd be a way to do that if you're allowed to explore it. But to at least to be limited in mentioning that as if it has no bearing just doesn't make sense. It's not practical. And it's not fair. To use the term fair, it's just not fair. To not be able to go down that route to explore a diagnosis, to explore a disorder, to understand if that has any impact on them telling the truth, if that's factoring in, you'd want to know was the, is, is he, if this person was on the medication properly when they were given proper sessions. There's so many avenues you could go down if you're allowed to explore that. Just to shed light on it and to expose it and to make sure to vet it out. All you want to do is vet it out, to vet out that the person testifying is given the truth. And if they're not, you want to expose that. And if they are, so be it. But to start limiting that ability and use the sentence that this diagnosis have no bearing on truth telling, that's just not accurate. And people need to be aware of that. And jurors need to be aware of that. So if you're in trial and you're getting, if, if somehow it comes out that somebody has a certain diagnosis, a certain disorder, keep that in back of your head. 
try to look into the different disorders and which ones have the common denominator of either lying, embellishing, delusional. There's so many things that you have to look into, and it's a legitimate gripe. It's a legitimate issue that the defense has a right to explore. And when they're not allowed to do so, once again, that's tipping the scales. All of these things just keep tipping the scales, and they want to claim it's about getting a fair trial. Well, when you do all these things, you're not allowing a fair trial. And when the judge makes all these decisions, they're not allowing a fair trial trial in their courtroom. Why would that be? There's a problem, something to think about. Well, I think that's it for today. I went on pretty long. I think it was pretty interesting. We touched on a few topics that I haven't touched on. So it was a good episode from my perspective. Who knows? Maybe you won't think so. But (laughs) from my perspective, it was a good episode. And again, check out that juror education. Uh, You just search it in Facebook. It's a good, just for the public, there's all resources. We posted a lot of articles, a lot of things that I think you'll find very informative. Until next time. You've been listening to the Justice Tech Pros Podcast with Dominic Crea, one of the most unique podcasts on the internet, discussing the obstacles the defense team faces when trying a case, what goes on behind the scenes during pretrial and motion phase, holding defense attorneys accountable, making sure they're fighting for their clients, the difference between textbook law and how things truly play out in a courtroom, and everything in between. And everything in between. We hope you've gotten some some useful and practical information from this show and we'll be back soon until then find us on twitter facebook and instagram at justice tech pros to email the show with questions and comments it's podcast at justice tech pros.com till next time this is justice tech pros podcast and dominic crea signing off <laughs>